Hello. Throughout this podcast, we will be discussing and sharing unfiltered and sensitive stories about deportation, family separation, racism, and trauma. As we've discussed in previous episodes, listening to and discussing stories of trauma can bring forward heavy emotional reactions for ourselves, and engaging with this material in smaller doses can support our own well-being. So please take care of yourself as you see fit. It's important to recognize when we're doing this work that, yes, we may carry wounds that are not just our own, but also intergenerational. We also carry medicine and we also carry joy. And we need to remember that we can't approach the community just as a, oh, pobrecitos, or like, oh, no, they're just suffering. Because the truth is that that's only one aspect of some people's lives. We're, we're also joy and medicine and wisdom. Um, and that needs to also be acknowledged. To our amazing listeners and supporters, welcome to the final episode of this series focused on the 2006 Swift & Co. raid in Cache Valley, Utah. Now, don't go hearing the final episode and think we're done forever. Solo Eramos Niños isn't going anywhere. We hope to continue to uplift the voices of Latinx people and immigrants, as well as create opportunities for education and action to work towards a safer future for everyone. That all begins here. In this episode, we will dive into ways you can get involved in your own community in supporting your neighbors of all backgrounds and documentation statuses. We will also discuss opportunities to engage in healing and connection for yourself, for professionals, and for communities. I'm Angel Lopez. And I'm Shelby Lopez. Empecemos. Over the last five episodes, we have worked towards examining the 2006 Swift & Co. raid in Cache Valley through the eyes of those who experienced it, while really seeking to understand the impact of this event for individuals, families, and the wider community. Part of our goal in telling this story is to educate others about the realities of immigration enforcement through the tale of this no longer small town. It was also our hope that for those who remembered the raid, or others who could relate to the impact of the raid, we could open doors and start conversations to begin processing the disenfranchised fear and grief that was wrought. We hope that in some way, even if it was small, we were able to reach those goals. Throughout this story, you may have felt your own fear, frustration, sadness, solidarity, and even anger. We know that we felt all of those things and more in telling the story. Those feelings are important and each deserves to be acknowledged. And sometimes those feelings make us want to take action, to just do something. The immigration system in the United States is complicated at its best and actively harmful at its worst. Trust me, I know how frustrating it is to see no pathway to citizenship for people you love. And then on top of that, to live in fear of losing everything or just missing out. As Shelby and I discussed ways our listeners could take action, we wanted to provide more than just call your senator, even though you should probably call your senator. In learning and discussing ways to take action, we've had some really beautiful and empowering conversations with amazing people. One such individual whose wisdom and words will be featured throughout this episode is Yvette. My name is Yvette Romero Coronado. I am the daughter of Ana and Ignacio, who are both of Mexican lineage. One was born in the U.S., the other one was born in Mexico. And, you know, they, they really taught me the value of family, hard work, and collective care. 
I also have matriarchs in my family that um, passed along knowledge of plant medicine and other traditional um, medicine practices that really helped to guide my path as a person, as a social worker, as a mental health professional, and as a teacher. So all the flowers are really for my mom and my dad and my abuelitas. And I'm a social worker and I'm a teacher. I actually I started teaching K through 12, and then now I'm teaching in higher ed, and have also maintained a private practice where I provide mental health services to individuals, couples, and families. Um, as well as consulting in the community to integrate trauma-informed and healing-centered policies. And I would say that the area that I really dedicated a lot of time to is trauma and looking at intergenerational trauma, how to recognize it, make space for it, and think about how to build systems that support people to heal and thrive. Um, people who find me are typically people who also identify as Latina, Latino, Latine, Latinex. Um, I've worked with survivors of sexual trauma, survivors of immigration trauma, survivors of crime. Those are some of my areas of practice. Getting engaged in your community and with issues that you care about will take on its own unique shape depending on your community and what you individually bring into the movement. Before we discuss ways to get involved, it must be said that no matter where you are, there will be people and organizations already engaged in this work around you. You don't have to start from scratch. Part of being in community is understanding and supporting the community building efforts that are already happening. One place to start is definitely, right, is like everything is on social media these days. It's pretty easy. If you're tech savvy, then you might just Google organizations in the Valley, use keywords to Google organizations or go through Instagram and see if you if you know people and you saw a post, like do a little, go down the right rabbit hole and go find those organizations, right? It's like, this is a different kind of scrolling that is more research oriented and and just start to sort of, Put an ear to what's happening locally. Find local organizations that are doing the work. Um, see what they're doing. If they have meetings going on, show up in a good way, right? It's like ready to listen, ready to learn, um, ready to start creating relationships and then find ways to then ask, how can I be a part of this? How can I support this process? Lean into the wisdom and the work of others who are engaged in these efforts and of those who have come before. Angel and I certainly don't know everything, but we will continue to learn and grow. And in doing so, we hope to help you continue to learn and grow. So one thing I did want to bring up before we dive into all of the ways that you can get involved is I am not a social work professional. We bring on a lot of social work professionals onto this podcast, and I even married one. But my profession is the tech space, which is so far removed sometimes from the real societal issues that impact our day-to-day lives. I am just another person, and my passions lie in supporting and uplifting the voices of my Latinx community. And I have done a lot of work to educate myself to better understand ways that I can get involved. And mine and Shelby's hope is really that you, the listener, can find passion whether it's getting involved in immigration and undocumented people's rights or something that you're passionate about. So I wanted to make sure I clarify that you don't have to be a professional in these specific areas 
to be passionate and show support for the things that you truly care about. With that in mind, and in the hope of love and small steps, we are highlighting four ways you can take action through movement building you can push forward in your own local community, no matter who you are or how many of you there may be. The first of these is understanding and engaging in mutual aid projects. So what is mutual aid? Mutual aid projects are a form of political participation in which people take responsibility for caring for one another and changing political conditions, not just through symbolic acts or putting pressure on their representatives and government, but by actually building new social relations that are more survivable. During recent flooding and storms, we saw mutual aid in action as people helped each other survive. Mutual aid isn't just for those big weather disasters, it is also for the daily routine, life-threatening disasters of capitalism and white supremacy. Basically, mutual aid is everyday people getting together to help meet each other's needs, not out of charity, but out of solidarity. What's the difference between charity and solidarity? A great way to look at the difference is when you're thinking of charity, it's often a vertical relationship. Someone who is acting with a charity perspective may be reaching down to help someone. Charity often assumes that the person who is in need or seeking support is deficient in some way, and the person or organization giving charity knows what's best for them. On the other hand, solidarity is a horizontal relationship. Someone who is acting in a solidarity perspective is reaching out to their neighbors, families, friends, or even strangers on the same level with mutual respect. Solidarity assumes that the problem does not lie in individual responsibility, but in systems that harm and leave individuals and groups behind. Solidarity also assumes that the community knows its needs and what's best for the community. In the previous episode, when talking about the grassroots church and community efforts to help in the aftermath of the raid, all of this was done in the spirit of mutual aid. We just didn't necessarily call it that. Just like our guests from Cache Valley spoke to, the efforts of mutual aid projects create connections and strengthen communities which means that when new events arise that challenge survival, that strength and connection are already there to help push back and lift each other up. Many mutual aid projects came to life during the pandemic. So like Yvette talked about, you can see what efforts are already underway in your community and join them. Or you can connect with your own friends and networks to start a mutual aid project based on the needs that you may see around you. Some mutual aid projects that other communities have put together to help those vulnerable to immigration enforcement and deportation include rapid response networks. These are efforts in creating a contact network to help warn each other when a raid may be happening or ICE is in an area. These response networks can also help people without documentation or a family member without documentation create a safety plan so that they, if they were to be arrested or detained, can have someone there to take care of their children and their families. We've talked about some ways that the Cache Valley community purposefully jumped into this kind of support after the raid, with church groups organizing help for material needs and coordinating care for the children whose parents were taken, and even Fran mentioning the call networks within the trailer park when they would notice a suspicious van driving by or if they knew that ICE was in the area. This kind of work and mutual aid support can be planned and put into place before these man-made disasters to help mitigate the trauma and confusion of an arrest or raid. 
Mutual aid doesn't just have to be for those moments of massive trauma. Mutual aid can be flexible to your community's needs, and solidarity can be put into practice every day. For example, in addition to feelings of fear and confusion, many immigrants face a language barrier when trying to get medical, educational, and public services. In considering this need, a mutual aid project could be formed to create networks of people who can accompany their neighbors to doctor's appointments or back-to-school nights to help translate and provide moral support. In doing so, you can help form connections while also taking some of the pressure off of the children of immigrants who are often expected to translate for their parents. As another example, in the last episode, Amanda talked about gaps in housing support and services in Cache Valley. A mutual aid group could be formed to help create flyers and resources highlighting tenant rights in English and in Spanish. This group could also support each other in learning about their local housing and zoning laws and their rights within those laws, as well as working to accompany others to housing court in the event of an eviction. These are just a few ways in which mutual aid can be utilized to support undocumented and underdocumented people. From creating networks to fight against labor exploitation, to sharing food with individuals and families who may not have enough. With creativity and heart, the possibilities are endless. The next action that you can take can be a mutual aid project in and of itself, or it can work to bolster mutual aid efforts. That is the community organizing strategy of asset mapping. Community asset mapping is a strategy for locating, obtaining, and mapping resources from a variety of different people and settings. I recognize that that definition doesn't really give a lot of information, but hopefully as we talk through the process of asset mapping, you can understand a little bit more of what it means and what it can look like. First step is understanding what an asset is. Assets can include brick and mortar organizations, such as nonprofits, churches, or businesses, but it can also have a more flexible definition. Assets can also encompass the resourcefulness, gifts, talent, and knowledge of people and groups in your community. For instance, your community may not have a law firm focused on immigration, but say Fernando down the street, who works at the grocery store, has a passion for researching and understanding civil and human rights. Fernando's knowledge and his talent for research is an asset. Furthermore, a singular organization can have a variety of assets. To look again at Cache Valley, in the wake of the raid, many churches, especially the Catholic Church, provided a number of resources to support the community. If you were to create an asset map of Cache Valley, the St. Thomas Aquinas Church would certainly be included. But it's also important to look at all the assets the church has. Those can include financial resources to help provide food and cost of living assistance for impacted people, emotional support and counseling that can be given by trusted clergymen or volunteers, organizational power to gather and send out volunteers who are themselves an asset, and even the physical building of the church, which operated as an unofficially official meeting place for organizing help after the raid, is an asset. In short, a community asset or resource is anything that improves the quality of community life. So why create an asset map? As we mentioned before, asset mapping is a community organizing strategy, so engaging in this process builds connections, engages parts and people in a community that might otherwise be overlooked, and can help empower and strengthen a community. Asset mapping can help prepare for hardships, such as the raid, 
It also helps visualize and understand the gaps in support and services that exist in the community. To understand what is missing, we need to understand what work is already being done. Shelby has been doing a lot of work around asset mapping this semester, so to better understand how to create an asset map and what you can do with one, I wanted her to break it down for us. Okay, so the first two steps in creating an asset map can happen in tandem, and one tends to inform the scope of the other, and vice versa. These steps are to set your boundaries and identify your partners. First, define the boundaries of the community you will be mapping. This can be determined by the geography of your town or county or school district, or it could need more nuance, with your boundaries focused on resources within a town that are only accessible by public transportation. This is your map, your community. You get to decide. Now let's look at identifying your partners. This can start off by gathering and engaging friends and family who care about and share your interests. You can also reach out to key organizations, such as churches, businesses, or nonprofits. The more variety you have in your coalition, the more reach and detail you can give your map. After all, everybody has different connections and networks that are all rich with their own assets and resources. Like we said, these two can feed into each other. If your partnerships mostly consist of your neighbors, then you may only want to create your boundaries for a couple of blocks or a subdivision or an apartment complex. If your coalition encompasses a wider range with maybe some neighbors and friends, but also nonprofits and some city council members and other service providers, the scope and capacity can reach much farther. So now that you have your coalition and boundaries set, next is to work together to decide what assets you're going to include. If you are looking to support immigrants in your community of all documentation status, maybe you are looking for assets that are multilingual and multicultural in providing resources for everyday life and building community. If the purpose of your map is to create an emergency network for supporting undocumented immigrants and their families in the event of a raid, the assets you're considering may have greater flexibility and creativity. Thinking about assets in the aftermath of the raid, I vividly remember a flyer that was created, and Fran mentioned it in an earlier episode, about immigrant rights and what to do if ICE came into your community. From the asset of having the knowledge on immigrant and civil rights to a printer to make sure that there was enough of these flyers printed to distribute into the community. And then the people that were needed to distribute those flyers. Each of these are assets that can be identified and included. Once the type of assets are chosen, it's time to get to work. Utilizing the networks and the knowledge of the coalition, gather and list the assets in the boundaries that were decided upon. Remember in this process, Assets can be broad and unique. Be sure to include community leaders, individuals with specific skills or knowledge, and even physical locations such as parks or libraries that can be used as meeting and gathering places. You can then organize your assets into a list like a directory or organize it on a literal map. Using a map can help you and your coalition to visualize literal geographical gaps in services and supports. When the map is complete, it can be used to support your goals in your community. It can be utilized by your partners and other community providers as well. The map can also be used as a community organizing tool to advocate for the assets and resources you found to be lacking in your community. 
The asset map will hopefully be a living document, always being updated and adjusted as the community works to fill those gaps and as assets change. Our nation's federal immigration laws have displayed our government's hostility towards immigrants who cross the border illegally. Throughout the years, immigrants have fought to make their place in America. Protested. We've tried to um, um, bring the facts to the forefront. We've uh, written uh, letters to the editor. We've, we've gathered in the, the Latino communities. We've given them pamphlets uh, to let them know what their rights are. You know, they too, whether they're documented or undocumented, they do have rights in our country. When people talk politics, they're often thinking about what happens in D.C. on the larger national level. When it comes to immigration and federal politics, working toward change and safety for undocumented folks can honestly feel pretty discouraging. It also doesn't help that the immigration system in the U.S. is incredibly complicated. But that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to fight for change. That's why the third area of action we're highlighting is local political advocacy. Yvette gives an amazing example of the political power of Latin people in Utah after the raid. After that was one of the biggest immigrant rights protests and walks in Salt Lake City. And everyone wore white shirts. I remember there was, it was huge. It went from city council all the way up to the legislature. Just there were lots of you know, young people, kids, parents that came out to protest. I, I didn't have any memory of that ever happening in the Salt Lake Valley, but things were enough pressure was happening in the community that I think the aunties and the uncles and the elders were coming out and recognizing that there was this was a really important moment to come out and speak up or be around community. At the community level, I think it was a really important show of solidarity. It felt powerful. It felt loving. It felt like it was also a space for a lot of different people to just have their righteous anger or to come and show support and be optimistic if that's where they were at and if that's what they felt like they could offer. So it was a really important and necessary community space, I think, for people who had been feeling the pinch, right? It's like, I knew I was working with high school students at the time and they were worried about what this meant for their families and just being able to see that there were people that cared about their families and that they could go to a place and share those feelings without hiding them or that other people just kind of knew or understood on some level felt like a really important source of support. At the policy level, I feel like that was probably because, in at least in my lifetime here in Salt Lake, with it being the biggest demonstration and walk, I feel like it was one of those moments of recognition on behalf of our leaders that this community really could rally around issues. And they were trying to, I really hope memory serves me well, but it, at that time, there were a number of bills that had to do with the driving privilege card, a number of bills that had to do with um, in-state tuition for undocumented students, and they were not taken away. So I, I want to believe that that show of solidarity and, um, and activism really helped to signal to legislators that this was an issue that our community was really invested in and needed to be protected. Group solidarity, getting together, and taking action can lead to real change. Although sometimes it can be very frustrating that that change doesn't happen as quickly as we would like, change is change and we need to continuously do that work. There are many amazing organizations that are deeply involved on the state level and work hard to navigate the complicated world of policy and politics. 
While these coalitions also present an amazing opportunity for you to take important action and advocate for the rights and protection of immigrants in your state, we wanted to discuss an important area of political advocacy that's even more local than your state legislator, and that's your local sheriff's department. Did you know that your local sheriff has a direct impact on immigration enforcement in your area? Did you also know that unlike your local police chief, your local sheriff is an elected official? Many sheriff's offices across the country partner closely with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, which significantly expands ICE's power and reach. To understand more of this partnership, it's first important to understand the role of the sheriff. One of the sheriff's main and most important responsibilities is to oversee and operate your local county jail. This means determining what programs are allowed to continue or be incorporated into the daily life of the jail. It also means that sheriff's deputies and the sheriff themselves can make arrests. In some areas of the country, sheriff deputies operate in schools as school resource officers. And many sheriff's departments carry out evictions. Because of these responsibilities, the sheriff also has control regarding how much information of what happens within the jail goes out to the public. This responsibility regarding county jails is one of the largest areas of partnership between ICE and your local sheriff's department. When ICE is operating outside of the border, they may not have offices or detention facilities available close to them, which means that they turn to local sheriff's departments to be able to hold and detain individuals they have arrested on suspicion of undocumented entry in the local jails. Sheriff's departments are also able to share their booking information with ICE officers in return. Booking information includes everything about an individual, which considers their place of birth and their citizenship status. From there, ICE is able to understand who within the jail at that time is or is not a documented citizen, and they can request that the sheriff's department hold that individual to begin detention and deportation processes. Oftentimes, ICE can request the Sheriff's Department to transfer an individual to Immigration and Customs Holdings and Detention Centers outside of their county. And lastly, through the 287G program, local Sheriff's deputies and the Sheriff themselves are authorized to act as immigrant enforcement agents in your local area. So although you may not live or ICE may not operate in your area, through the participation in this program, your local sheriff can still be an ICE officer. Many sheriffs across the country willingly and eagerly create this partnership with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and many even campaign with the promises of harsher immigration enforcement in their districts. So for the last approximately 16 years, my father has worked at his local county jail, which means he works under the sheriff's department. Over these last 16 years, I have heard him talk about many different sheriffs that have come into office. He has been able to see how each different sheriff has impacted the day-to-day operations of the jail and the priorities of the sheriff's department in terms of law enforcement. The reason we wanted to highlight the role and partnership of sheriff's departments with ICE is because the sheriff is an elected official, which means that he has sole decision-making power over the shifts in policy and shifts in that partnership. So because the sheriff is an elected official, they work for us as their voters. 
And we, as their constituents, have voice and power. Otherwise, they lose their jobs. And we can find somebody to replace them and elect somebody who will listen to the voice of the people. This is why education and grassroots mobilization is so crucial. Because the more that people know and understand the real issues facing immigration, they can make informed decisions at the polls and elect sheriffs who won't perpetuate the harms of deportation. I highly encourage you to look into what the current relationship is between your sheriff's department and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. In understanding this relationship, there are several demands that you as a constituent can make of your sheriff. Some of these demands include separating all department operations from federal immigration enforcement. This includes terminating any existing agreements with ICE, including 287G, and refusing to give ICE access to a jail without a judicial warrant. It can also look like demanding reducing arrests and jail bookings, stopping jail expansions and closing jails altogether, as well as decriminalizing low-level offenses. We also have the responsibility to hold the sheriff's departments accountable, and we can do this by demanding transparency and publicizing budgets. That way we know where our taxpayer dollars are going. We can also demand that they make all arrests and booking data, as well as jail population information, anonymous, so that ICE can't utilize this information. We can also demand that departments provide legal resources for immigrants, such as a list of immigration legal service providers, and know your rights information. This is all just scratching the surface, and we could dive into so much more information, but for now, we will leave a link in the show notes about the role of sheriffs in the arrest to deportation pipeline so you can learn a little bit more and find more ways to take action. So far, the opportunities we've discussed have been pretty future-facing, looking forward towards building community and shifting policy. But as we've talked about throughout the entire podcast so far, trauma and fear have long-lasting impacts. For communities who have experienced a collective trauma, it may be important to take the time to come together, to look back, to create space to recognize one another's pain and one another's humanity. This kind of love and hope can and should be brought into all of your action and activism, but especially so when engaging in community reflection and healing. In speaking more with Yvette, she discussed actionable things that we can do to connect with our communities and heal together. Show up ready to not be thanked for the work that you do. Just show up and do it because you want to do it. If we're going in expecting to get that kind of response, we have to really ask ourselves, why are we doing it? Am I doing it for me or am I really doing it for them? And be ready to know that in some cases, people might trust you and in other cases, people might not trust you. And it's not a given. You have to work out a relationship to really earn trust and to then be able to walk along the path with them. It happens in the most intimate spaces first. I think, and and I have only my personal experience to reference here, but I feel like healing happens in the context of either trusting or safe relationships. And those are typically perhaps with family, extended family, friends, communities that people are already in touch with. And I think having people who are versed in some of this work, who already have relationships with people just even open dialogue about it, right? It's like, I think of the dialogues that happened in my home. Certainly back then I was in my sabelo todo phase, right? Where I knew everything and I was definitely not coming at my parents in the right way. 
But now that I get to sit with my family and have conversations about a number of different things, I can hear them and understand that their process unfolds in a, in a very unique way that all of us are on our own journey and we move toward healing at a different pace and in a different way. And it looks different for each of us. I also think it happens in organizations that already have established trusted relationships. I can give as an example here in Salt Lake City, there's Comunidades Unidas and they're an immigrants rights organization and they have a pretty wide network like they're they're a trusted entity in the community and people go to them for support so in our homes at organizations that already have capacity and experience and relationships with those communities i think of this the same way i think of teaching and learning is like first you actually have to go into a space where you can practice those conversations where people share that vernacular right or that language and have that same understanding it's like go find your people's practice 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 have those conversations and then go try it at home right it's like for me that was mecha mecha was the first place where i was having conversations about social injustice and and capitalism and xenophobia and all these words that perhaps now i would not wouldn't necessarily just throw out in my family conversations but i had to get that practice under me i think of them as reps because like you get your reps, but you have to practice that in an environment that's going to be supportive and affirming so that you feel like you get a little of that confidence and that courage to then be able to go practice in an environment that might be less likely to, it might just be not as easy. And so that's what I would say is like, first go find your folks who know how to have that conversation, practice, then find the ways to bring that back home, but in a loving way and recognizing that not all of us are ready to confront pain. I remember having conversations with my abuelito who passed away last April and I would ask him questions and then he'd be like, para que quieres saber? Why do you want to know? And he would, he would give me general answers if he wanted to. And then I found out that he later had a conversation with my mom and was just like, why is she trying to dig this up? He's like, some things just belong in the past. It was a it was a, an important moment for me to recognize that just because I'm ready to do it doesn't mean that my grandpa was ready or wanted to. And that's true for all of our elders. And that's really who I'm talking about here, right? It's like, I think that I'm not by any means saying that the only people who are versed in this are younger people, but I think we're growing up already in a different environment. And if we are the ones who are going back home and having those conversations with our parents, our grandparents, our aunties, and our uncles, we have to remember that coming back home means also approaching them with love and compassion and understanding that they might just not be ready and might not want to have those healing conversations and everybody's entitled to sort of move through it as feels right for them. I think those are important intergenerational healing pieces that we often have a really hard time with. Like Yvette said, having purposeful conversations to process difficult events of our family and community past can be challenging and not everyone may be ready to engage in healing in that way. I know that growing up in my family, mental health was really taboo. There was a misconception that if you sought mental health services, that there was something wrong with you or that you were crazy. Thankfully, that has changed a lot. But I know and understand that every family and every community is different and not everybody is ready to engage in seeking support from an organization or an institution. But that does not mean that there's not already healing within us, as Yvette highlights here. I think, you know, one of the, our ancient practices that comes from the Mexica or the Azteca is like this this practice of platicas or like just talks 
and they happen just between comadres and compadres and just like people who know each other. Right, it's like this is where the good cheese happens. This is where the mitote happens. This is where the cafecito and the pan dulce and all the different sort of um, things that bring us together are already present. I think those community spaces already exist, and this is why I think it has to happen in places where intimacy and trust and love already exist. I acknowledge that I don't live in a rural community. I don't actually do this work. I'm speaking to it from from theory and only from like familial experiences. But I imagine in community centers or churches, there could be spaces for platicas, um, at family gatherings or at parties, events in the community, but just spaces that intentionally sort of just bring people to talk eat, sit down, and exchange words with one another. I think those are really important cultural practices that we've been doing forever and a day and and I think are really helpful in every environment. I also think dance and danza have been such a powerful medicine in our community for such a long time. I don't know one party that doesn't go off when cumbias or bachatas or other music starts to play. So I think that being able to also be in our bodies and just move and experience the joy of that, uh, the endorphins and the serotonin and everything that comes with it is also a really important practice that's accessible. It's like, I think the practice of making food together, exchanging recipes and all the talking that happens when you're cooking, those things can also happen at home or can happen in an organized way by some church, right? It's like, I think of churches often when I think of rural, because at least here in Utah, they seem to be important centers of community. And then spiritual practices, right? It's like, I think people who do go to church can have access to religious practices. And then there's also spiritual practices of cleanses, limpias, being out in nature, spending time with our plants. I love plants. Like my plants are a really important source for me of like grounding And they're things that I was taught by, also by my grandparents. They had the most amazing green thumb, like amazing. And my grandfather was a farm worker. So he already had a bunch of knowledge about how to be with the land that um, I also really try to tap into and feels like a source of, of strength for me. And as you can tell, like none of these have to be done by professionals. These are things that we already do in community, but being able to recenter them as like, this is the medicine. The medicine has always been in our communities. How do we create spaces for, intentional spaces for it? To take action, to give of yourself and your heart in that way can be draining. Fighting for good is still fighting, and fighting can be exhausting. Caring can be exhausting. So as important as it is to show up and organize, we must also take the time to rest and breathe, to connect and have joy. To care for ourselves with the same kindness with which we care for others. Once we reach sort of that burnout or exhaustion, right, it's like your body is telling you, you need to fill your cup. So when we get to that place is really like, what's going to fill my cup? What's going to give me joy? What's going to energize me? I always say to people like chase the ease and chase the joy, whatever feels easy, whatever feels joyful, whatever makes you feel like it gives you a big hug. And that can be people, plants, snacks, nature. But I think those are those are things that are absolutely necessary and things that inspire you. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Adrian Marie Brown's um, Emergent Strategy. 
She's she's great. She talks about attention liberation, like letting go of whatever bad news you're looking at and then only do happy scrolls, right? It's like attention liberation from the bad news. If you need to disengage from that for a little bit, go chase all the good news. Like what are the good works that are happening in the community? Get inspired, get energized by that, and then get back to work. One of my biggest takeaways and all of my attempts to support change and healing from like home all the way into the classroom is that I always have to manage my expectations. That is my vision and my hope. And then I have to bring it to the here and now to remember that each person in front of me is in a different point in their life and has different capacity and resources to manage what's happening for them. And that's what I have to respect, right? It's like it's in social work is like you meet people where they're at and being able to remember that everybody's in a different place and every person's going to need something different from you. That's actually healing because when we come in with the sabelo todo attitude, it's actually much more harmful than it is helpful. It's like it just creates rifts between people. It's disengagement. It's tension. It's conflict. And some conflict is helpful, but not the conflict that comes in telling the elders, like, you don't know. And I know everything. It's like it's approaching it with care approaching it with understanding and with love and approaching every elder like they were your elder. I always think to myself, well, is this how I would approach my grandpa who was one of the most closed off, stubborn machos that I have ever met? And that just sort of helps me be like, okay, take a deep breath, manage your expectations, approach with care and love and just listen and see where they're at and, and join them there. So that's my last piece is be with people and be real about what your expectations are and check them. Throughout this podcast series, we have sought to understand and tell the story of the impact from this immigration enforcement. With curiosity and trauma-informed care, we hope to speak to what the impact felt like in the individual, in the family, and in the community. At times, telling this story was very hard for us. And for you, our listeners, we're sure that at times the story could have been hard to hear. But we deeply believe that creating the space to learn, to listen, and to remember has been worth every minute of labor. We recognize that the impact of the 2006 Swift & Co. raid is still there, and is still felt. It may feel like the shadow of that cold December day looms dark and wide, and to push through the threat that it may happen again may feel terribly oppressive. But our hope in this last episode was to shine a light, to remind everyone listening that they have the power and potential to create a positive impact in return. As you find ways to reach out, to get involved, we invite you to find what works best for you and know that even small steps help move us all forward. Ultimately, all we can ask from one another is to care and to give care, that in doing so, we can work towards change and healing. We want to give a special thank you to Alexis Rausch for creating the cover art and other branding materials. Follow and support this incredibly talented and amazing individual and her beautiful art on Instagram at Alexis Rausch. And a huge thank you to Chris Illig for producing his very first song, specially for this podcast. An important thank you to Lara Jones and KRCL Radioactive for being willing to further amplify this story to their audience across Utah. Follow and support them on Instagram at KRCL Radioactive. The final and most important thank you is to those we have interviewed. We are honored by your openness and vulnerability. We recognize your courage, 
and we thank you for trusting us with your story. So my love, where do we go from here? As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is just the end of the first season. This story left its mark on my heart and in my community and is so near and dear to me. We started this project with the hope to amplify the voices of the Latinx community, especially the ones that are often silenced by fear, and we will continue to do just that. If you have a story that you would like to have amplified, or if you would like to engage with us, please email us at soloeramospod at gmail.com. That is S-O-L-O-E-R-A-M-O-S-P-O-D at gmail.com. We have a couple of bonus episodes in the works, the first being best practices for social workers and other service providers in working with Latin and immigrant communities, the second being around immigration detention centers in the United States and the often inhumane ways they treat detainees, as Shelby and I have recently visited the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. Additionally, we'll be releasing short educational episodes on current events that impact immigrant and Latin communities, as well as Latin and immigrant history in the U.S. as we prepare for season two. To keep up with the releases for these episodes and for more information on season two, click that follow button wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Solo Eramos Pod. We hope to have a whole website up in the near future where you can find more information, ways to get involved, and resources. Muchísimas gracias, mi gente, y hasta la próxima.